Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money Show. And as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using Nidig, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional-grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory governance and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out Nidig as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. We've talked about how gold emerged, its limitations, why it ultimately fails, talked about why currency was introduced to augment some of its shortcomings, uh, but also suffers from its own problems and it ultimately fails as we have seen and are seeing. So how does Bitcoin fit into the picture? So Bitcoin as money I mean, simply put, Bitcoin's the best money that the human race has ever had the ability to embrace. We know gold is defective because of its mechanical nature, and we know fiat's defective because of its political nature. Bitcoin, why does Bitcoin work, right? Bitcoin has the things that you need in order to construct a shared, immutable, correct ledger, right? That's our target, shared immutable correct ledger. And Bitcoin's got a base layer protocol. The base layer protocol is genetically encoded in the system from day one. The 21 million coins is one of the critical parts of it. The 2.1 quadrillion Satoshis and no more than that. I think uh, the I mean the second part of the protocol is not just the mathematical coin parameter. It's also the proof of work security model. So when we created it, we created it with 21 million coin limit. We created it. Satoshi created it with a proof of work security model, and that is the part that makes it more likely to be immutable and shared and correct. And the third part is the balance of power between the miners, the nodes, and the wallets, or the, the holders. I, you know, it wasn't inevitable that you had to build it this way, right? Uh, Bitcoin is an engineered monetary system. So it's, it's a feat of engineering. 
they built a protocol, they chose components, they, they chose the cryptography, they chose proof of work. All of these were engineered components. And, um, and then uh, the, the balance of power between the miners, the nodes and the holders with the wallets, that became clearer in the block size wars, I think. And following the block size wars, I mean, first miners were the nodes and then the miners and the nodes split. And, mm -hmm. and uh, eventually we saw that um, the nodes themselves had a huge amount of power uh, to check the power of the miners. But now we're seeing the emergence of the power of the holders. And of course, the holders are all three of these dimensions are decentralizing at a rapid rate. So I would say that, you know, we need the protocol at the base layer, that base layer protocol that, that I just described that replaces the gold that was here at the beginning of the universe. Mm -hmm. And it replaces the base layer protocol that's the political artifact of any kind of fiat currency. The second thing that Bitcoin has that makes it uh, a much better money is it as an application layer protocol. The base layer protocol, you know, ensures that we'll ha never have more than 21 million Bitcoin. I mean, that's the, the most important thing. And then it ensures, what do I need? I, I need uh, durability, integrity, and security. So I need to know that it'll never be more than 21 million Bitcoin, even a thousand years from now. I need to know that people aren't going to monkey with, you know, material things like the frequency or the block size. That's the integrity part of it. And, and uh, I guess in dirty, durability integrity, they go arm in arm, right, in a way. Because if, if you change the frequency and the block size, you may in, inadvertently end up changing the limit at some point because you break it. And then you need security. You need, to, you need to know that no malefactor can hack it or break into the network. So we're getting all of those things, the security, the integrity, the durability via the base layer protocol. But the application layer protocol is also important and that's you know the ability to do final settlement transactions at the base layer with a bitcoin wallet address and you know yeah we could debate interestingly robert like do you need lightning or not and that's an interesting debate because i i think that if we just had the ability to do base layer transactions on the bitcoin network the system is still perfected enough to serve as a monetary system. Mm -hmm. You would end up with um, you would end up with with uh, the layer two application being built via by a counterparties with some counterparty risk, right? Instead of instead of what you can do with Lightning, but the combination of base layer transactions via Bitcoin wallet and then layer two transactions via Lightning wallet. I think those two things together, you know, are kind of, they're clearly superior as an application level protocol.
And if you group them together and say that is the the non-custodial, decentralized, open source protocol for moving money around in the Bitcoin standard, then you've got the, the structure of something really compelling. Another way to describe this is Bitcoin gives you uh, a base layer protocol to move large sums of money around at small cost in an hour. And it gives you uh, a layer two protocol to move mid-level and small sums of money around instantly for almost nothing. Mm. On my lightning wallet, you know, I can, I can move a thousand Satoshis at the cost of one Satoshi in a second which is more efficient, right? right. I can move 100,000 Satoshis, it's like $30, right? I can move $30 for one Satoshi in a second. That makes that layer two protocol, you know, faster and more efficient than any other currency transfer protocol that I'm aware of in the history of the world. Right, and my understanding of it is <clears throat> as the network proliferates and the network density grows, the, the transactions per second actually increase. And I don't think there's an upper bound on that. So the Lightning Network could actually be at full scale, this global system of you know instant final settlement effectively, which is mind blowing. Yeah, I, th I mean, I think the Lightning Network is really strategic to the proliferation of Bitcoin. But uh, as, as a theorist, I think that what's critical to Bitcoin success is not the lightning network, but the underlying Bitcoin final settlement. Mm -hmm. As long as someone can take final settlement of $100,000 in an hour yeah. for five bucks or 50 cents, or, or I think right now, probably if you took, if you set a lower fee and you were willing to wait longer, right? You can, you can yeah. take final settlement in a day for, nickel some some very small amount and if you want it done fast then you pay more yeah but i recall um, that optionality is what keeps counterparties honest as you said i recall you describing people being polite in miami because everyone's potentially armed that kind of dynamic <laughs> yeah it means you can pull your bitcoin off the exchange or out of the bank or away from your counterparty in an hour yep and I, so I think that's critical. I yes, think that's critical. Agreed. I think lightning is, is uh, probably something that's going to accelerate, you know, the spread of Bitcoin. And, it, and it's the logical next step. If we can engineer a decentralized, non-custodial crypto asset network, based upon private keys and crypt cryptography and the like as Bitcoin, then there's no reason why we couldn't engineer a layer two of Bitcoin that's also non-custodial mm -hmm. and decentralized that makes a different set of trade-offs. In essence, I think the Lightning Network is a decentralized, open, uh, open proof-of-stake network but but the the critical issue is it's a proof of stake network not staked with its own token but staked with the underlying token of bitcoin which makes it a much higher integrity um much higher integrity um much longer living more secure 
open decentralized network than one that was created with its own token, which would be kind of self-referential. Right, right. And the the I guess one other slight difference there is the actual revenues generated on Lightning are for routing transactions versus just um, staking the asset. You get some percentage yield off the asset. You're actually getting paid for services rendered. Yeah, which, which, which makes sense. Yeah. So we've got two things. We've got a base layer protocol and we've got an application layer protocol. And so why does the Bitcoin standard work or why is Bitcoin uh, the best monetary system, right? How does it succeed in reality? Well, let's start with inflation, right? The scourge of inflation, which destroys fiat and destroys gold doesn't exist. In Bitcoin, you've got a, cons a conservative system and a mathematically complete system. So it's mathematically correct. And it is conservative in a thermodynamic sense that, that we don't add additional energy in the system, nor does it deplete energy in the system. And the, the basis of that conservation is that uh, base layer protocol. Mm -hmm. Right, the base layer protocol plus the proof of work together. You you could have designed a system which wasn't conservative, right? Just because you get everything else right. If Satoshi had gotten everything else right, but then left some randomness or some mm -hmm. inflation in the token count, you know, yeah, it wouldn't have been ideal. Um, I think the second thing that is a big attribute for it is uh, the difficulty of confiscation. So the, the private keys of cryptography are the strongest property rights in the history of the human race. Mm -hmm. So if we think about cryptography as the, as the basis of property rights, then truthfully, the only property you can really own is, is, um, digital property on a secure crypto asset network of which the only one we know of is bitcoin mm -hmm. so right now right the only property you can truly own is bitcoin like look if we ever went to alpha centauri and we went to a new planet and and we cut off you know cut off communication with the earth it's possible that the dictator of Alpha Centauri could spin up another Bitcoin network, Centauri mm -hmm. network. And if it was a closed system given enough, and it had the same exact mathematics as this, as it spread as a virus and infected the billions of people in Alpha Centauri, it would be its own crypto asset network. Right. So you can, you can imagine something like that. But right now, what you've got is one successful life form and that is bitcoin and uh and so you've got one successful digital property and now now we actually have an engineered property and so you have an a scientific basis for property rights mm -hmm. and we never had it before and it, it's illustrated pretty effectively it's like if if you have a million dollars and and um, you convert the million into a building. Well, the building can be seized by the mayor by eminent domain. You can lose your building, so that and you can't move the building. So that the building is impaired property, and the building can be taxed. It is immobile. 
it can be seized, it can be taxed. And uh, it also has physical nexus, which means, you know, a meteorite can fall on it or an earthquake right. can wipe it out. So there are risks to the building. The useful life of the building is 100 years, mm-hmm. maybe less if it's poorly constructed. So, and it's only appealing to people in that geographic political nexus. If the building was in North Korea, how valuable is a building in North Korea to an investment company in New York City? Right. Right. So. So a building as property leaves a lot to be desired. Land as property has the same issue. You know, a, a block in Manhattan is a lot more valuable than a block, you know, in the middle of the desert yeah. because the land is geographically located next to uh, a lot of investors with a lot of money that can actually develop the land uh, for some economic purpose. And the land can be impaired and taxed. You know, the property tax, uh, you know, in fact, there's a phrase in the real estate business, they always talk about triple net. Mm -hmm. And, you know, triple net is like, like, after taxes, (laughs) after your taxes, you know, maintenance, after your expenses, etc. so these are high maintenance properties. They're very expensive and not very portable. Yeah. So you can you can rifle through the properties. Well, there's art, there's gold, there's silver, there's commodities, there's securities, there are bonds, there are currency baskets. They all have uh, they all have some liability. Many of them are currency derivatives, and so as currency derivatives, they have. They have an, you know, dilution coming from the inflation, the underlying currency. Mm-hmm. But the ones that have, have physicality are subject to search and seizure and impairment because you can't move them. And then some are, others are unique maybe, but, you know, even though you might own art, people are going to create making more, or they're going to yeah. keep making more art. And so if you're looking for a property that no one can seize, that no one can, uh, that, that is, is hardest to impair, Bitcoin is the hardest to impair property. It's, it's technically, I would say it's probably the hardest to tax, the hardest to destroy, and the, the hardest to seize, and the hardest to impair mm-hmm. of any property available to you to purchase right. at this point. I would say um, one thing I think is really interesting here is that, you know, if we define property as an exclusive relationship between an owner and an asset, but that relationship requires enforcement, you know, typically it's enforced via the government historically, um, but Bitcoin's different, right? Bitcoin is this property right that's enforced. You can enforce yourself. Yeah, enforced by the network. And it's actually the first property right completely independent of that monopoly on violence. Like not only does it not require enforcement by the government, but it's completely independent of the government. And that um, that's just a lot to get your head around. I think that we've actually invented a property right fully independent of government. Yeah, it's and and we'll talk about it more when we get to talking about proof of work and mining and the like. Mm. 
because you can go really deep into the basis of security for this property. Mm. But for the purposes of the Bitcoin standard right now, I think the most important thing to be said is, is it's the hardest thing to confiscate on earth. Yep. And I joke, you can take it with you. If I shoot you in the head, you can't take your gold with you. The Egyptian pharaohs built pyramids to take the gold with them. They were all robbed. Mm -hmm. If I said to you, take a million dollars and buy some property, and then and uh, you have to make sure that, um, and you're going to be murdered by somebody that you and your family <laughs> next week, buy some property that they won't get after you're dead. How, what is that property? There's only one. Right. Yeah, I mean, securities and bonds and currencies won't last. Yeah. Gold, all these things are seizable. You can't take them with you. But if you buy Bitcoin and you hold the private keys in your head, when you die, the Bitcoin goes with you and no one else gets their hands on it. And the significance of that is because it's impossible to confiscate with force, and because it disappears with your death, then any hostile actor always has an incentive to negotiate with you. Because it's better for me to hold the gun to your head and take half of it, than pull the trigger and get none of it. Yep. And that's not true with any other property. In all other cases, I can pull the trigger and get all of it. Yeah. And so you, you have an unstable situation with that property. And the interesting thing is that confiscation element, it works at the individual level, the institutional level, and the nation state level. So if one nation is going to declare war on another nation and murder everybody, they get their gold. Mm -hmm. They also get their land. They also get their factories. I mean, there was a joke, neutron bomb, I'll just nuke you and we'll leave the cities. Mm -hmm. I might get the gold, the silver, the farmland, the buildings, the factories, the ships, but I wouldn't get the Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And so the spoils of war, Bitcoin is not spoils of war. Right. Other things may be, but Bitcoin is not spoils of war. With regard to a bank or, or a financier, if you own the Bitcoin and someone puts a claim against you, the way it normally works is like, I've got a million dollars with a bank and I borrow against it. And then they decide to mark my securities down and they force liquidate me and they sell all my securities and take my property. That happened, uh, that happened with Archegos. Archegos. I mean, it happens all the time. It happens all the time on crypto exchanges. Mm -hmm. If you have your crypto on the exchange or your Bitcoin and you borrow against it, and then you can't meet a margin call, they can force liquidate your, your assets and they seize them. But if you pull your assets off the exchange, and if you hold your private keys, then your bank can't seize your assets in a hostile fashion, they would be more likely to negotiate with you. Mm. And because you can take custody of it, you don't, you don't necessarily need... Um, 
to rely upon this all or nothing. Either I give you all my stocks and I borrow against them, or you have none of them. We could split the difference with, I give you proof that I have it, right? Proof of reserves yeah. without the transfer of the asset and return for a different type of loan. So let me, let me ask you a question real quick. So we're yeah. you touching on something really important that Bitcoin alters the economic logic of violence, which is a very important element of how humans organize themselves. Yeah. And you mentioned previously, you know, the beginning of the series, how war has this tendency to accelerate learning for people, you know, kind of under the, the duress of war or the desperation of warfare, we figure out new, new ways of doing things. Do you think armed conflict in the 21st century could accelerate nation state adoption of Bitcoin as this sort of advantage dawns on them that they can't be, you know, they can be plundered of their gold, but not necessarily their Bitcoin? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think all stress, all stress will accelerate the adoption of new technology. Mm. Right. For example, when people are fighting wars, like when we're fighting wars, we were hauling over C-130s or freighters, air freighters full of pallets of cash, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So normally the way you fight wars is with gold or with cash or with something. And, uh, and if you're cut off, right, and you need to buy or, or sell materials of some sort, you need hard currency. So I, I think that, uh, yeah, it will accelerate the adoption of technology like Bitcoin. Uh, and, and coming back to this issue, right, because it's not confiscatable, it doesn't invite violence on your person from other family members. Like, for example, you ever worry about being murdered by a family member be, because of whatever your will says? If, you're, if you had your Bitcoin in a multi-signature relationship or multi-sig something or other, then maybe uh, maybe it changed the dynamic. So I think um, I think all sorts of violence, you know, against the individual, against the company or the institution, or against the uh, the municipality or the nation state. I think those are all less likely and more likely to more less likely to happen and more likely to result in negotiation. Mm. So why else is Bitcoin going to succeed? Why is it succeeding? Well, because hypothecation is so much more difficult. I'm not saying impossible, but the layer one and the layer two protocols, Bitcoin and Lightning, those mitigate the need for hypothecation, right? It's, it's less likely you would, need, uh, you would need to trust all your assets. If I can move 1% of my assets a day for a Satoshi, then I wouldn't put all my assets in a bank. Right now, all of your assets, all your stocks are probably in a bank. You don't hold any of them. Right. In theory, you could actually take possession of your stocks as like certificates and put them in a safe deposit box and, you know, take them out of street name, they say. Yeah, I don't even know it's if you can do that matter. anymore. People don't do it. Yeah, I think that... I may be wrong about this, but I think the DTCC now officially owns all stocks, even if you own the certificate. Yeah, so it's harder and harder. Yeah. Yeah, so the protocols mitigate hypothecation and also they punish um, 
hypothecators. Like mm. if someone did go naked short Bitcoin in order to make a quick dollar and you pulled mm. all your Bitcoin off the exchange and they have to then settle, right? Creates a massive short squeeze. Yeah. So whenever you pull those securities away from the hypothecator, then they get squeezed. So if I knew that it was impossible, like if you had a billion in gold, I know you're never going to take delivery of it. I can, you know, short it a hundred to one. Yeah. And if I knew you'd never take delivery of the Bitcoin, I might get a little bit cute, but, <clears throat> but in a world where people can, then, you know, there are, there are exchanges that fail, mm -hmm. just like there are bad banks that fail. It's just that they're failing continually in Bitcoin because that's the nature of the free market. And that's how the free market squeezes out um, defective actors and malicious actors. Right. And the ones that, um, the ones that have perfected security and the like, they succeed. So the, the fourth dimension of, of um, virtue for Bitcoin is, uh, you know, superior authentication. And again, the layer one, the layer two protocols and cryptography in general, what you can do, proof of keys and the like, and proof of reserves, they, um, they solve the authentication issue. And it's, maybe it's solved you know, for the first time effectively. You know, when you want to settle or you want to buy a piece of real estate, sometimes it takes a week, two weeks to do a title search. And it's a manual process. So you're talking about a, a hyper expensive manual process to even to even do a title search on a small amount of property. Mm -hmm. And Bitcoin gives you a way that's, I mean, presumably it it's somewhere between a thousand and a million times cheaper and faster. Mm -hmm. Like it's not an order of magnitude, it's it's many orders of magnitude better on the authentication. And uh, maybe even more important than that, um, it's all, you can automate the authentication. So that means that a computer program could authenticate 100 million different holders every hour mm. for a nickel. Right. And when you get to that level, that opens up the possibility to create new types of businesses and new types of applications that, that otherwise would have been cost prohibitive because of the friction involved. Bitcoin succeeds, succeeds over fiat based upon transportation and uh, dynamics too. the fifth element of virtue. Um, it's fast on layer one, and it's instant on layer two. Moving $100 million of property on layer one in an hour is fast. But moving $100 million, or maybe even moving um, moving $100,000 on layer two in a second for nearly free is instant. And so, so it's just much faster. And, and uh, it comes with no, no artificial geopolitical, um, geopolitical constraints. Mm -hmm. Right. Even when you have fast on fiat, you have fast subject to geopolitical constraints that are continually shifting. Yeah. Whereas fast and, and Bitcoin has no geopolitical jurisdiction. It's cyberspace. It's orthogonal to geopolitical space. Mm -hmm. And um, 
what you want is a situation where a billion people in China could all authenticate themselves and trade on a value network through the great Chinese firewall to a website sitting in Cuba or sitting in the US. You'll never do that with any kind of fiat system. Right. In fact, in fact, the entire Chinese system is constructed to, to create a capital firewall so that yeah. capital can't flow out of China or in China. The central bank chokes it in order to in order to maintain the RMB peg yes. versus the dollar. So that idea that I can I can cross that layer instantly, that means I can build. I can build a value exchange into a billion transactions a minute. Mm -hmm. And I can build a value exchange that flows in a billion transactions a minute for a billion people across 100 million different applications. And they can all they can all move fluidly, right? So I guess it's the difference between if you want a metaphor, right, liquid fluid flow uh, into a container like that's Bitcoin and lightning, or um, you take uh, one kilogram gold blocks and you can move, or, or even London good delivery bars, right? What are they 400 gram, uh, four, no 400 ounce or whatever, I forget. Yeah, 400 ounce London good delivery bars. You can do what, you can build whatever you want with those. But one of them is, it's like Legos that are 400 ounces each. Yeah, and right. the other is water, liquid, yeah, right, or air. You know, there's just no comparison between yeah. the two. Static right? versus dynamic. Yeah, and completely liquid, like, yeah. try what I want you to do is construct a tornado with London good delivery bars of gold. <laughs> yeah. You, you can, you know, you can imagine a tornado with air and water. Yeah. Or a whirlpool or a cyclone. Yeah. You just can't imagine that with big, you know, bars of gold because one's discrete and the other's continuous. Exactly. It's a difference between discrete fluid dynamics and maybe arithmetic with uh, Legos or something. Right. You know, it's like, you're like, well, Legos is fine. Yeah, it's fine for third graders. Yeah. Yeah. But Legos, you can't design a rocket nozzle with Legos. Right. You're not going to design the wing of a supersonic airfoil with Legos. You know, yeah. you need continuous fluid dynamics. You need more optionality. Right. Again, we're back to this. I, there's some core point here where. Again, earlier, the customer optionality to withdraw their Bitcoin out of the bank at any time keeps the service provider honest. Yeah. So then the service providers actually have to compete for the business, which gives us lower prices, better services, more innovation, more wealth, more freedom. And it's, it's this, it all, it all, it's all rooted in this precision, uh, of customer choice, right? Where the similar with the Legos, you don't have as much options with the big block, but if you're at the molecular level of the fluid, you have a lot of optionality. There is a dance between mm. counterparties and 
you know, are you dancing, you know, using two ton granite blocks mm -hmm. or are you dancing, you know, <laughs> using water or are you yes, dancing with right. air? And what, what, what structures can you create? Um, and, you know, if, if we take all those things together and you consider the consequences for distribution, right? Bitcoin is something that can be distributed to everybody on earth for free, effectively free. So it's truly liquid. What I need is if I wanted to distribute something to 8 billion people and I wanted 8 billion transactions an hour forever, like I want that degree of fluidity, I need to do it at the price of a Satoshi, a transaction. I need to do it with very low friction. So the so this low transport cost, this low friction results in massive distribution. And we can see with gold, for example, there isn't one ounce of gold for everybody in the world to give them. And so mm -hmm. there's no way to distribute money with gold. And if we take fiat, we know there's 1.7 billion people that are unbanked maybe more right and so and and we know the ones that are banked are imperfectly banked and the banks don't cross connect so we can't find a good way to distribute money via fiat or via gold but via bitcoin we do have a clear way mm -hmm. and i mean the last element is this division right the ability to break it down i can't break down a gold bar a gold coin I can sort of break down fiat, but in it, but even one penny is like too much sometimes. Mm -hmm. Being able to go to one Satoshi is better than one penny. Yep. Especially because of this one thing. One of the big problems in cybersecurity is um is uh spamming and scamming. Mm -hmm. So I can't use the DMs of my Instagram because they're all 99% of the communication is spam or scam. I can't really use the DMs of non-verified or non-followed individuals in Twitter because mm -hmm. of the same thing. I can't really use email without very expensive email filters that are continually filtering out spam and scam and the like. So there's, there's, massive amounts of cyber insecurity uh -huh. every single day if you have a website it gets attacked sometimes by a denial of service attack there are all sorts of hostile actors that will do ddos attacks all the time the reason for for uh ddos attacks and scam and spam is there's no cost right to attack it there's no skin in the game and so what we need is to introduce skin in the game. The way to mm -hmm. do it is to require a value exchange whenever you move through a router. If you, if you had to, uh, to pay a price to send a message, at some point you would attenuate large amounts of that scammy, spammy activity. I mean, yeah. that's why proof of work was invented in the first place, right? Adam exactly. Back was trying to come up with a solution to stop spam. But the other thing you can do is, is um, you can actually tie um, the value, say, 100,000 Satoshis, 
as a security deposit into your persona online. If you, if you posted 100,000 Satoshis <clears throat> to your Twitter account, and if they gave you an orange check, and that was your security deposit, then the understanding would be, you know, if you misbehave, you get fined. And if you're a malicious actor, you know, maybe you forfeit the security deposit. Mm -hmm. This is the way it works when you're renting a home. Yeah. This is the way it works in 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 all all the real world. You're a bonded laborer. This is you can't drive a car without proof of insurance. Right? I mean, so we have these kind of insurance policies or security deposits or performance bonds that pop up all through the real world economy. And in the absence of all of those, because you're a real world actor, you have a risk. And the risk is if you misbehave, you have culpability, you're responsible, you may get pulled over by a cop. If you say something rude to somebody's wife, you may get punched in the face. Yep. I mean, you have you have either economic skin in the game or you have actual skin in the game. Right. If you walk out onto a bridge that's rickety and you screw around and do backflips and you fall off the bridge, you may die. Yeah. There are consequences in the real world and the economic world, but there are no consequences in cyberspace for many of these yeah. activities. And so the result is people actually even create programs to create bots. Yes. And I might spit out a hundred million fake Michael sailors to do irrational, malicious things. And they're not even me. They can't die. Yeah. Right. And that the result of that, that by the way, when you do that, that's a denial of service attack. Mm -hmm. The result of that is cyber insecurity. So the fluidity the speed and the efficiency of the Bitcoin lightning network has has the potential to give us a solution to the cybersecurity problem if we simply start to tie a small lightning wallet or, or an amount into some of these systems that YouTube, Google and Facebook and Amazon and Apple and Twitter and Medium and Reddit and all these other places where people are, you know, it's not a day that goes by that someone doesn't post a Michael Saylor video on YouTube offering to get you free Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, that's not me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's no verification on YouTube or registration. So if you had to actually post some deposit and if you were forfeited the deposit, but by the way, it's not that they don't take down the accounts, they do. Mm -hmm. Um, they take them down within a day right. of when I report them. Every day there's 10 Michael Saylor accounts that get taken down on Twitter. It's just there's no economic cost. Right, exactly. I mean, I, and I understated that really. The truth is in my newsfeed, there's a thousand fake Michaels that have yes. stolen my image and my name. If you charge them all a quarter each, it would become a massive revenue source for Twitter. Right. The scammers would immediately realize that there's a cost to attack the system. Yes. The amount of uh, malicious behavior would drop by 99%. This is a, a tragedy of the commons, effectively, right? The freeloader problem where there's no cost to these imitators. So they just keep repeating it. And apparently it's a profitable enterprise because to your point, there's new ones every day. And there's, 
And so the reason it exists is because the fiat standard system makes it too difficult to actually post something of monetary value. Right. The only way you can post something of monetary value in the fiat standard is with a credit card and you dox yourself and then you're not anonymous anymore. And so that's offensive to one group of people that don't want to be identified. They want privacy, but it's also prohibitive to another group of people that don't have a credit card. And a third group of people that have a credit card, but the credit card won't clear across nation state boundaries. Yeah. Bitcoin solves that problem. Yeah. And it fixes it. So on one hand, one extreme benefit is, yeah, Bitcoin's a way to store a billion dollars for a hundred years. On the other extreme, Bitcoin's a way for everybody on Twitter to post 30 cents Mm -hmm. in order to eliminate 99.9% of the malicious behavior yes. and improve the quality experience. Now back to your dance. If Twitter can ask for a 100,000 Satoshi deposit, and if people give it, and if Twitter's quality of service goes up by an order of magnitude and their cybersecurity enhances, that might put pressure on Instagram. Mm -hmm. That might put pressure on Google. And ultimately, now what you have is every big tech company competing with every other tech company to improve their service by building Bitcoin into their service. Yep. Because Bitcoin can eliminate uh, fraud on YouTube. And Bitcoin can eliminate fraud and cyber insecurity on Instagram. And so you, you've, got, you've got something... It's like, why, why do I adopt this new technology? Because I can or because I need to? The early adopter does it because you can, and the later adopters do it because, because they need to. If PayPal doesn't roll out Bitcoin and Square does, then Square starts to eat PayPal's lunch, right? And if PayPal and Square both roll out Bitcoin and Apple and Google don't, Right, then they're mm -hmm. at, a, at a loss, right? So you have competition that's embracing new technology to progress the civilization to a better space. Bitcoin's the future for cyber. It's, it's the promise of cybersecurity. Right. In fact, that, that's the great irony. People criticize Bitcoin as maybe being a tool of, of cyber hackers. <laughs> but, but, the, but the ultimate destiny of Bitcoin is to make cyberspace safe for 8 billion people. Yeah, by building it into every cyber offering and creating, you know, skin in the game. Yes, for every malefactor and consequences that are not based upon counterparty risk and don't have to be threaded through nation states or central banks or credit card yeah. company. Yeah, it's it's truly transformational and you know just simply by introducing that risk of loss for agents in the system you're just incentivizing honesty which is again kind of this grand theme with bitcoin uh and one other benefit that you know this is kind of just a promise of bitcoin now it's still experimental but the idea of building social media applications on top of the lightning network in a way that they are actually censorship resistant i think that experimentation is very important especially as we see more people being deplatformed, canceled, censored, et cetera. Um, so it just seems like there's this potential for Bitcoin to restore honest, you know, unstoppable discourse in the digital age. 
Yeah, Bitcoin's the, Bitcoin is the crypto asset network and Lightning is this uh, crypto transaction network. And it's possible for us to have other crypto application networks, mm -hmm. decentralized, uh, open, non-custodial, and, and they all have promise based mm -hmm. upon the core idea. So if we wrap up this entire Bitcoin standard discussion, why does Bitcoin succeed in theory? Well, because the base layer protocol is mathematically sound and secure, and the application level layer protocol is sound and it's open to upgrade. And the, therefore the property rights that it delivers are perfected and they're open to upgrade. The open network means that you can upgrade them. And when I say upgrade, you know, maybe upgrade means keep making the lightning network better. Mm -hmm. Maybe upgrade means roll out Square Cash app with cash tags. Maybe the upgrade means build it into Apple Pay. You know, what does it mean? It means 100,000 different things, right? It, there, there's a free market, a Darwinian competition to build applications and other types of platforms that, um, that are upgrading the Bitcoin protocol and they're, they're, they're drawing on the, the promise of digital property in order to meet some other use case. Mm -hmm. And uh, there'll be some that will succeed. There'll be some, there's going to be exchanges that fail. Some succeed. There's a hundred thousand ways to think about a wallet, right? Some will be better than others. The market will sort it out. We've got we've got a very competitive Darwinian system, but you know the the result is every intelligent person that encounters Bitcoin, they're incentivized to find a way to make Bitcoin more valuable, mm -hmm. and they might do it by a creative financial application, they might do it with security, they might do it with a device, they might do it with uh, you know a, a software program. They might do it by plugging into a different network, a different way. And some ideas will be great ideas and other ideas will be good ideas. And some ideas will be bad ideas. And Bitcoin will benefit from the good ideas. It will accelerate from the great ideas and it will ignore and slough off the bad ideas. And uh, that's something that, uh, the gold and fiat, they don't have working for them, right? You, you could imagine some gold applications, but you are crippled, you know, gold jewelry, gold goblets, gold coins. And then that's the end of the road with gold mm -hmm. and with fiat applications. We took that much further, you know, heck, we created sovereign debt. Mm -hmm. We created all sorts of interesting money markets and and all sorts of other securities with fiat. We created traveler's checks, we created credit cards. Mm -hmm. You can't say there aren't interesting applications. The entire Visa and MasterCard network is kind of a thing of awesome beauty if you compare it to the system of Roman gold coinage. Oh, yeah. Clearly, yeah. big advantage, it got the civilization to where it is. Bitcoin is really just still early days. You know, we're just into the second decade and um and these these applications and these networks that will be built on it are in some ways the blink of an eye but you you see 
You see in the conventional world, uh, companies like Nidig and Nidig's built a, a CFI platform and that platform is being used to deploy Bitcoin type services to banks downstream. Mm -hmm. You know, they've, they've created a platform so that you could create a credit card that integrates with Bitcoin some way. And so that's layer two, layer three. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's a custodial layer two, not a non-custodial layer two. You have counterparty risk in NIDIG, but there's nothing that says that it couldn't become uh, a non-custodial lightning-based platform at some point. Right. Who knows? But that's one approach. And then lightning is another approach to a layer two, a non-custodial decentralized layer two. But, you know, that's not the only, there's no monopoly on this. You know, you no. could create a competitor to it if you wanted to, and then you can, and then you can create uh, applications like Square Cash App, which is another kind of custodial application, but it is an open custodial application. So, to the extent that you want to, you can move your Bitcoin out. And move it to another uh, another layer two platform yeah. or to another application or just take self-custody so, just so gonna these say, are all just different ways that the network is evolving yeah, i was just going to say even the custodial risk is different with bitcoin because it's trivial to take delivery of it you know it's cheap relatively cheap to secure um so even if you are taking some counterparty risk with some of these layer two layer three technologies a lot of them can be set up to either you withdraw manually or even automate the withdrawal into self-custody. Yeah, sometimes the hardcore Bitcoiners are, they're a little bit uh, hard on everybody. <laughs> and uh, it's like the perfect being the enemy of the good. For example, if I buy the Bitcoin and I trust a counterparty for a week, but I have the option to take it off the exchange or out of the mobile app when I want, that's a totally different situation than if I bought a million dollars worth of land in California. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. You will never in a million years be able to move the million dollars of land in California yeah. out of California. Right. So the custodial risk of a building or land is orders of magnitude greater. You're trusting the mayor of the city mm -hmm. and the governor and the nation state mm -hmm. and every bureaucrat and you're never going to change that. Whereas, look, even, even if you bought Bitcoin on PayPal when they didn't have the wire out option, mm -hmm. people like had a you know big fit on Twitter. But the truth is, so you had some Bitcoin on PayPal and for six months you couldn't uh, take custody of it. And then after six months, because of the, the, the big, uh, the big uh, protest about it, eventually they upgraded their wallet and now you can. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so it is possible if you buy Bitcoin in certain places that you'll be able to custody it or move it uh, somewhere in the next year or two or three years. But it's absolutely impossible that you will ever, you know, convert a building in New York City, you know, into something which, you know, moves at the speed of light on the lightning network. Right. Not not without selling it, liquidating it, paying the capital gain tax on it, and converting it, right? So, yeah. So I think that um, generally, 
you know, just about all these flavors of Bitcoin, you know, are, uh, are higher quality property. Mm -hmm. And even when you, um, you know, sometimes people want to own the Bitcoin outright. Like, and I get that because like our company owns the Bitcoin outright because we want to be able to transfer it to any counterparty and take custody and do whatever we want with it. We want sovereignty over it. But if you were to own Bitcoin in a fund or an ETF, it's still higher. It's the second highest quality property you could own. Mm -hmm. It's not the it's not the best property in the universe because the best property in the universe is owned the Bitcoin, but mm -hmm. the second best property in the universe is own a Bitcoin derivative that's one for one backed by Bitcoin from a counterparty that you can reasonably trust. Mm -hmm. Right, and there are plenty of examples where people have buckets of money and they can buy the security, but they can't buy the Bitcoin. Like, like you, it's in, like in some retirement plan and yeah, you're able yeah. to buy a security, but you can't buy the Bitcoin. And there are lots of investors, trillions and trillions of dollars of money managers, and they've raised money. I might have a hundred, uh, I have $10 billion in my portfolio. And because of tax code or because of law or because of the contracts I have with my limited partners or the charter, I can't buy the Bitcoin, but mm -hmm. I can buy a security based on Bitcoin. And so the I mean, the real world is, is a nuanced one where there are lots of different types of capital. Not all capital is fungible, right? Not mm. if I have a billion dollars, it doesn't mean I can just convert a billion dollars into Bitcoin overnight, I might have 100 million and all I can do is buy land. And I might have another 100 million, all I can do is buy a security. And I might have another hundred million and all I can buy is debt. Mm -hmm. If that was the case, I would prefer to have debt backed by Bitcoin, land underneath the Bitcoin miner <laughs> and a security that is a Bitcoin backed security, mm -hmm. because those three things would be sitting on a stronger foundation of collateral than to buy three things that have no relationship to Bitcoin. And, uh, and so, that's one. That's the value of Bitcoin. Ultimately, you compare gold standard to fiat standard to Bitcoin standard, and your conclusion is uh, Bitcoin is is simply digital money, and digital money is is an engineered system to create a shared, immutable, correct ledger. If you were Satoshi and you were doing it again, <clears throat> your checklist would be, okay, how do I make it shared and open? Uh, how do I keep it from changing? Mm -hmm. You know, how do I make it mathematically correct? And then what kind of things can I put in it that will cause the entire world to want to protect it and secure it and improve it over time instead of attack it and destroy it? And I think that's what, Satoshi created this this engineered digital digital asset network that mm. happens to make the perfect monitor the best monetary system that the human race has come up with. Mm -hmm. If there's ever a better one, you'll start from those principles, right, of digital money, and you'll say, "How do I make it uh, better?" You know, and you. 
you could imagine maybe something better, but what's most likely to happen is, is the Bitcoin blockchain just migrates into the better thing. That's right. And it, and it, it goes on, right? Yeah. Yeah. The adaptivity checks itself into the better thing and carries on. I don't know why it wouldn't last thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah. You would, you would assume that the UTXO set would just migrate wherever it needed to go. Um, Again, is that that open source adaptivity of Bitcoin makes it seemingly disruption proof? Because what can you do? How do you disrupt it? I mean, I, it's really interesting, and um, I think this is a, a brilliant way to look at it. Um, I so one last question here. Clearly, it is superior property for all the reasons we've laid out. What is the impediment? to people understanding this? Is it just the, I guess, the proof of work necessary to study Bitcoin to understand all of this? Or, or is it a misunderstanding of property? Is it a combination? Um, I think it's, uh, it's just the rate at which the human race can embrace a profound idea. Mm. There, there's the speed of light. And that's a limit, you know, Einstein spent a lot of time talking about. Mm. And the speed of light is kind of the rate at which the universe can communicate, you know, mm -hmm. with itself. And the speed of sound. And the, you know, the speed of sound is, is the mechanical rate at which uh, air can communicate. Mm -hmm. Right. If you're moving faster than the speed of sound, you're arriving before the molecules can get out of the way. Mm -hmm. And that's why there's a shock wave mm -hmm. because you're moving too fast. You can't, you know, the speed of light is like, that's the speed limit. Now there's a speed, a, a, a speed uh, through uh, of which an idea can move through a socio political economic fluid that we call mm -hmm. a culture. How fast can, um, can an idea move through a culture? And it would be a function, I think, of, you know, cognitive bandwidth of human beings and distraction and life expectancy of mm -hmm. human beings and how fast they speak with each other and how much you sleep. You know, and if you ever look at, you know, look at animals, you ever see, you know, some of the animals, the smaller ones seem to move faster than you and me. Mm -hmm. Right, right. They, you know, they're at a much different frequency. Yes. Right. They can agree, disagree, careen into a, you know, into a brick wall, come back, regroup, careen into another one, agree again and move forward. All in the amount of time that we're deciding whether we should make a decision. <laughs> it's a frequency. Yeah. So this socio-political frequency in the, in, on the history of science, the structure of scientific revolutions, you know, they just speculate, you know, generally new paradigms, they take place when the entire older, old generation dies. So 30 years, a, a generation is reasonable because in 30 years, an entirely new group of decision makers take over the government. Mm -hmm. Right. The person running the army is 50 
And the 20 year old will be running the army in 50 years because, because that's a life expectancy or the career expectancy. So normally it's life expectancy to take a paradigm shift or generational expectancy about 30 years. But sometimes if there's a war, certain things get jammed faster mm -hmm. and they get jammed faster because your life expectancy on Normandy beach wasn't 30 years. Right. Right. I mean, if you, if you do something egregiously like, like assuming that you cling to horses and you reject machine guns, that was an irrational behavior that could last from, you know, 1905 to 1914, mm -hmm. but it didn't last from 1914 to 1915 mm -hmm. right. because there was a war. Yeah. Right. And there was like an instant and, you know, instant consequence. So I, I think that uh, that war and disruption accelerates consequence. And the absence of that is a generational thing. And then you'd have to crank in, you know, the rate at which information moves now. Like, for example, I, I feel like information moves on YouTube much faster now than five years ago or 10 years ago. Yes. Information yeah. moves on Twitter faster. Yeah, there's almost this liquidity coefficient for ideas that has just gone through the roof with digital tech. So I mean, it used to be someone would retire and they go back to Harvard University and they're going to teach. Okay, so you retire and you're going to teach from age 60 to age or age 50 to age 80. So you teach for 30 years and you have 100 students a year, 200 yeah. students a year. And so you spend 30 years of your life. And after 30 years of your life, you've taught 10,000 people. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and now, you know, you get 10,000 views on a podcast and that's like, that's a boutique thing, right? Yes. Yeah. So information is moving at a broader scale. There's, there's a much more competitive battle over ideas. Good ideas travel faster. Mediocre ideas don't travel at all. They get stamped out. Their race is evolving a bit faster. But, but having said all that, you know, like Warren Buffett still got a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's still got a lot of money. Has he listened to 10 hours of content on Bitcoin yet? Probably not, right? No, probably not. <laughs> so somebody controls $100 billion and they haven't spent 10 hours thinking about it. So what, what happens? Well, that $100 billion will be locked in the old system until some cata cataclysmic change takes place, right? So I, I think that um, it's reasonable to, to expect it takes a decade. Mm -hmm. Decade like, until- A decade is fast. You think full maturity? I mean, clearly not full maturity, but- um, It took one decade for the thing to become, look at the life cycle of Google. Mm -hmm. You know, that, weren't they founded like 1998, something like that? Yeah, so a little shy of 25 years. 
the first decade they were they were growing fast, but people weren't convinced that Google was going to rule the earth, right? Right. The second decade. Right. Now we're at the end of the second decade, and now what do you think of Google? Yeah. So I mean, I think normally ten years, you know, to to get going, and then the next ten years is the big ten years. Right. So this is it. We're I think we just finished year one of the second decade. Gotcha. You know, year one yeah. started like Black Thursday. Right. Yes. Of March last year, yeah. you know, and and think about everything that happened between that March and the next March. Yeah. Such an inflection point for digital technology, the digital age even, and for distrust in analog institutions. You know, the, the, it just seems like they both diverged um, almost in an instant. Okay, guys, that was episode 12 of the Sailor series. And once again, Mr. Sailor brings the heat, uh, this time exploring Bitcoin as an alternative to both gold and fiat. So we started the conversation here with a very important concept. And we saw this with gold and fiat, right? The, or gold and currency, rather, in that money tends to be implemented in layers, right? We had gold as kind of a base layer of money historically. But as we've covered, because it was limited in its transactability across space, we had to abstract gold into a layer two currency application to make it more transactable across space. So we find an analogy for that in Bitcoin, actually. You know, Bitcoin layer one, this is the, the Bitcoin blockchain. This is the equivalent of gold, right? You have somewhat slower settlement, although it's still many orders of magnitude faster than physical gold. Um, but the the energy expenditure and the slowness of settlement and consensus on the base chain is what gives it rigidity, certainty, integrity, security, reliability, dependability, all of these features you want in uh, in money, right? It's a place you're storing your wealth. You want to know that it's resistant to all forms of corruption, manipulation, distortion, et cetera. And that degree of assurance has a cost. And the cost is proof of work, right? You have to actually expend energy to uh, create assurances of supply limitation. So to ensure that Bitcoin adheres to its fixed cap, its fixed money supply of 21 million, the only way we know how to do that as a species is through energy expenditure. Um, don't let anyone else fool you about this. Uh, for reasons you know, Sailor goes into much more deeply, proof of work is the only established consensus mechanism for guarantee, guaranteeing a fixed supply of money. So it is proof of work that makes Bitcoin thermodynamically sound money, right? It's secured by energy by necessity. And there's a deeper point here in that, you know, work is the only thing you cannot counterfeit, right? This is, you could think about this in a physical sense, right? You can't, um, just work out really hard for a week and get in really good shape, right? It takes years of dedication and training and persistence to actually uh, look athletic, right? You have to actually become athletic to look athletic. So there's a proof of work involved uh, with becoming physically fit in the same way that there is with 
guaranteeing the quality of something else, like a money supply. And this is important that work cannot be counterfeit because that's exactly what the central bank is doing. It's a centralized, legalized currency counterfeiting operation, right? It's generating a new supply of money with no energy expenditure, no work outlay whatsoever. And this, that is the reason, right? Because there's no cost associated with expanding the money supply that the central bank is in a privileged legal position to confiscate wealth from the entire productive economy. This is the core reason. There is no proof of work in fiat currency. And that's what Bitcoin's fixing, right? So Bitcoin uses this consensus mechanism to hold a fixed supply. And this is optimizing its ability as money to express value across time. So that is what layer one is optimizing for, the expression of value across time, just like gold was. And then at the application layer, layer two, we see things emerging that are trading off some of that trust minimization or assurance, right? And that instead of um, not needing to trust anyone, you just are trusting the Bitcoin code and the mining network, which is um, the incentives of the mining network are aligned with their own self-interest. So you're basically trusting the self-interest of miners to preserve the integrity of the blockchain. Uh, at layer two, you're actually trading away some of that trust to instead depend on smart contracts with something like Lightning Network, which is this lattice of interconnected smart contracts that allows you to send Bitcoin around the world at very high speed. So Lightning Network would be kind of an analogy to currency, um, but again, with orders of magnitude, more efficiency. Uh, you know, on the, again, at the, I think the... You'll have to check my numbers on this, but I think when the Lightning Network reaches a certain level of network density, meaning enough people have adopted it and there's enough channels uh, interconnected, that the transaction throughput goes to near infinite and the transaction cost is basically near zero. So you're getting like this perfected currency, this digital currency application um, via the Lightning Network on top of the assurances of Bitcoin core, the blockchain. And what this, the, the trust is preserved in this system because participants in the Lightning Network maintain the option to settle to the Bitcoin layer one blockchain at any time at their own discretion. So again, this is a very important point we hit on a lot. This optionality preserves honesty. So if you know we're uh, both routing transactions on Lightning, uh, which the rough analogy here is like, if you imagine an abacus, you and I both fund our channel with one Bitcoin. We can then slide beads back and forth across that abacus, um, kind of like a credit or debt-based system effectively, but either one of us can settle to the main chain at any time. So there's no, there's um, pretty much an inability to corrupt that, that transaction mechanism. And so that uh, abacus connection then gets scaled out to an entire network um, of peers, which is the Lightning Network. So this, so you have the optimization for expression of value across time at layer one with Bitcoin and its fixed supply of 21 million, which comes with limitations, right? These are thermodynamic engineering limitations that you can't move it uh, as quickly across space, right? It takes time to settle to the base chain. You know, typically it's six confirmations, which is roughly 60 minutes. 
but you can trade off some of that security assurance into something like the Lightning Network or other protocols. There's many in development. We're just talking about Lightning today because it's the most sophisticated so far. Uh, and pick up, you know, near perfect transact transactability across space uh, while giving off some of that assurance across time. So what you're getting here in the the integration of these two systems, layer one, layer two, is you know a, an optimized money effectively. You've got something that holds its value perfectly across time, and you've got something that moves or expresses value across space uh, as nearly as perfectly as as we figured out so far. So. This is, um, it's a really profound invention. Um, and so I think the, the other point here is that, you know, the lightning network, we said we're funding this with Bitcoin. So again, the, the analogy here was we had to custody, we had to centralize the custody of gold into warehouses. And then those warehouse operators issued receipts for gold. Those were the call options on gold that became banknotes became currencies ultimately. And that's essentially, we're, we're replicating that model, but in digital space with the Lightning Network. Um, the difference being that you have this instant option for final settlement at any time, which was not something that the warehouse operation could offer, right? You had to actually take the paper back to the warehouse, redeem the physical gold. And then if you wanted to transact in the gold again, uh, seamlessly and conveniently, you actually had to take it back to the custodian Put the gold on deposit, take the paper receipts and transact with those. So this combination of layer one, layer two technology and Bitcoin gives us an instant global final settlement system. I mean, it's something like we've never seen before. And that that optionality, right? To, again, to call to settle to the base chain whenever you want, this is keeping the whole system honest. Um Maybe another way to think about this is you can basically call someone's bluff, right? Like at any time you can call their bluff. So, um, and this is kind of a rough analogy because I don't think in the Lightning Network, there's a lot of uh, latitude as far as manipulating these contracts, but because there are more features in these smart contracts, there is in theory more attack surface, right? There's more opportunity for software engineers to, to um to mess with things, let's say. So it's not as trustless as the base chain. So I think that is a useful way to look at it. Um, and so we have a money that's evolving in layers. So anytime someone's decrying Bitcoin at the base layer, like you have to you have to have this knowledge of how monetary systems work. They work in layers and different layers are designed to satisfy different functions of money. Right. In this case, uh, we're talking about time versus space. So that gets us into the discussion on why Bitcoin succeeds. Um, Sailor laid out a number of good points here. The first being that, you know, it's the end of inflation, essentially. Bitcoin eradicates the concept of unpredictable supply inflation. We all know with perfect certainty, essentially, that 21 million will ever exist, no more, no less. Um, I guess you could say less, actually, when, when coins are lost or destroyed, um, which would be sent to a burner address that no one has the keys to, you're actually contracting the total money supply downward from 21 million. And this has an anti-dilutive effect on holders. So every time someone burns a Bitcoin, they're basically making a pro rata contribution to all other Bitcoin holders because it's increasing the scarcity per coin effectively. 
And, uh, you know, another reason Bitcoin succeeds is because it is the ultimate form of property. Uh, you know, as Sailor spelled out, it's got a non-physical nexus. It has this inbuilt security that's independent from the monopoly on violence. So you don't need this political approval for the relationship between you and your asset, which is property, right? Property is the relationship between owner and asset. You instead just need the security that's built into the Bitcoin blockchain and possession of the private key, right? So there's it's this radically new property, right? A non-physical property, right? With no physical nexus. Um, and then very importantly, it's securable in any information bearing medium, which is just really profound. Like it's an, it's an information bearer asset. So you can take this private key, you can chop it into pieces, you can distribute it geographically, you can put it, you know, you can encode it in uh, publications or songs or any number, anything that can bear information, which is just opens up the, the spectrum of possibility um, for securing your money. And so, and, you know, to that end, Sailor makes this point that you can t- even take Bitcoin when you go. Right? And if you put private keys in your brain, for instance, and you pass away, then that's it. Bitcoin's gone and you've taken it with you effectively. Um, and if the market's aware of that, then it's essentially, once again, I guess actually, even if the market's not aware of it over the long run, it would be that anti-dilutive contribution back to the market just because the coins will never move. So um, that would take some supply out of the float, which, you know, against the same demand, it actually increase the purchasing power of Bitcoin, which is really interesting. Um, and the other point he makes, which I think is a really good one, is that hostile actors, because they can't take Bitcoin from you involuntarily, that it actually bends the incentives towards negotiation. Whereas if you have physical gold, someone will just pop you and take it, right? Or physical cash, your Bitcoin custodied properly can't be confiscated that way. So what an attacker or transgressor would do instead is they'd be incentivized to negotiate with you. Um, and that plays into a bigger theme we, we talk about in a bit. Um, so and then the next point we went into was the hypothecation of Bitcoin and You know, with low transaction costs, the ability to withdraw at 24 by 7, um, any would-be hypothecator is very likely to be punished by the marketplace. Um, So another way to say this is you, with with hypermobile capital like Bitcoin, that the user, right, either the user of this custodial service or whatever, you know, if it's the Lightning Network, um, whatever service or function it is, they have more optionality by virtue of Bitcoin's mobility. So this allows um, this allows customers more power in the marketplace. And you could you could compare this to something like the gold market, where gold again suffers in the portability department, right? It's very difficult to go and claim physical gold. It's expensive to move and settle, et cetera, et cetera. And it is for that reason, that central banks have been so successful in manipulating the price of gold in the derivatives markets, right? Because what it is, you have a lot of paper claims to gold, these call options to gold, if you will, floating around the marketplace, but very little, little to 
any physical settlement, right? There's still some being conducted, but not at a high frequency enough um, to, to call the bluff, right? Once again, the, the, with an inability, we'll say with immobility of capital comes an inability to call a service provider's bluff. And what this does, uh, as we explained in a prior episode, this opens up this gap between trade and settlement, right? Between representation and execution between what you say you're going to do and what you actually do. And in that gap is where all the corruption and systemic risk in the traditional financial system fester, right? Because there's all these signals out there, these non-costly signals that aren't being rectified to reality frequently enough. So we get all of this distortion in the marketplace from this simple technological limitation of gold, which is really mind-blowing. You know, if gold were just informational, if it were just hyper-portable, it would resolve uh, a lot of these issues. And that's exactly what we get in Bitcoin, right? We get we get the properties that gold provides us as money, but perfected eff- effectively. So it is this uh, destructive force to corruption, frankly, in the traditional financial system. And then, you know, Sather makes a further point that Bitcoin is also solving for authentication. Um, you know, this is a big deal too. Like in traditional markets, especially if you've ever bought or sold a house, you've probably dealt with title search. And what they're looking for there are other claims to the property effectively. But Bitcoin, by virtue of it being a informational bearer asset, it is unencumbered by the act of possessing it. It's just as if you hold you know, physical gold bullion. Um, the mere act of possessing that presupposes your ownership of it. So that's very important. This, this radically lowers transaction costs, this lowers legal costs, disputes, et cetera. Um, and it just simplifies things and that you, you can hold your wealth in a trust-minimized bearer asset that no one else has claim to. The end. Um, so that's, that's very powerful. And there's other aspects to the authentication as well that you you can prove reserves, actually. So you can sign a message on a Bitcoin balance and prove you have the balance, that you have control over the balance you represent that you do versus having to you know, have an audit or some other time-consuming, expensive process. You can just sign a message. It's that simple. Um, and so that, that's a big deal. And then you know, we also made the point that Bitcoin is hyper-transportable. Uh, which has all the benefits we've outlined earlier, but also it contributes to this more to optimizing this dance between counterparties that Saylor discussed. And this is, in many ways, you could think of the market process itself as one giant um, decentrally choreographed dance between counterparties, right? It's um, countless service providers providing goods and services to one another, but also exchanging you know, money and contracts and trust and signals and information to, to coordinate their efforts. And, um, and you know, <laughs> I love the example where we said, you can't make a tornado with gold bricks, but you could with water or wind, right? So if we think as money, if we think of money as these little data packets of veracity, if you will, right? So it's like, if I send you money, if I hand you a gold coin, you don't need to trust me in any way. I've just authenticated to you that I have the economic value under my control necessary to buy the good or service. So it's a little packet of truth. 
And with Bitcoin, we get this very deeply quantized packets, these little packets of veracity. So this enables a much more elaborate dance between counterparties, which is to say a much more sophisticated market. And as we know from economics, that the more you can increase the frequency and intensity of exchange, the more wealth you can create. So another way to say this is um, the smaller and less expensive your transactions are, the more rapidly people will trade, the more wealth they will generate. So just by virtue of being a much more transactable money, Bitcoin promises to usher in uh, a boon in, in economic activity. And you know, it's further to that point, Bitcoin becomes very distributable because it has low transaction costs. So, you know, whereas we see all the sort of costs, headaches, and corruption associated with government helicopter money currently, if they were instead on a Bitcoin standard, uh, notwithstanding the possible <laughs> insolvency of the government in that case, they would be able to much more easily distribute money if there were a helicopter money like program on Bitcoin. And uh, also Bitcoin's much more divisible than physical gold. You know, each unit is divisible into 100 million subunits called Satoshis or SATs. Um, and with transaction costs so low, uh, you know, they approach zero on layer two, as we said earlier about Lightning Network. And with the, the divisibility so granular, this enables micropayments. Micropayments are something that have been talked about on the internet for a long time. But they've always suffered from this problem of not being able to overcome the fixed cost that's amortized into them from the legacy banking system. But with Bitcoin, micropayments become possible because, again, we can get the cost so low and the unit so small. And this is when Sailor took the discussion of Bitcoin fixing spamming and scamming. Right? It's, it's reintroducing skin in the game, which is to say a balance of incentives and disincentives for each economic agent in that they are incented to behave properly and disincented from uh, behaviors that would be harmful to the network. And this, that dynamic, this is uh, something Taleb writes about extensively. It's inherent to and necessary for the longevity of most systems. I mean, this is like biological systems, socioeconomic systems, um, systems of all different varieties. and. Um, it's very interesting. That is another one of those core principles that like lacking skin in the game is the reason we have so much corruption in the financial system, right? If, if the central bank policymakers bore the consequences of their decision-making, they would be much less likely to engage in decisions or execute decisions that would harm uh, the economic system. But because they do not suffer any consequences of their decision-making, that they run rampant. Uh, and expand the currency supply like mad, like we're seeing currently. And this is, you know, it's interesting that, and that, you know, he went into the discussion of this fixing social media as well. And one aspect I found interesting here is that, so with Bitcoin itself, you could say that early adopters are getting in it because they figure it out, right? We figured out the first properties of money and how Bitcoin is superior. Um, they, they buy it because they can, right? Like you're betting on this future outcome uh, kind of based on a study of the history of money and based on the technological limitations of gold and the applications and potential of Bitcoin, you sort of make this risk-adjusted bet 
to buy it. But should Bitcoin succeed as we think it will, there, there's going to be a cohort of people that will buy it because they need to buy it, right? You could say this is someone in a hyper uh, in a, in, a, in an, an economy undergoing hyperinflation. They will buy Bitcoin just to escape the inflating currency and be able to buy bread and water and um, these staples of living. So there's this spectrum of kind of early, slower adoption. And at the other end of that spectrum is this late adoption under duress in a way. But Sailor opened my mind to this interesting in that that not only occurs at, at the monetary in the monetary use case, if you will, but it could also occur in the social media use case that he lays out, where if Twitter adopts Bitcoin and starts attaching, um, you know, these these SAT transactions, if you will, to their messaging system or to their commenting system or reputation system, whatever it may be, and it introduces this incentive schema that promotes quality discourse, and say they have success with that by so so Twitter has created a more uh, honest environment for social media by virtue of integrating to the Bitcoin system, which is enabling micropayments to be attached to all these messaging services, introducing risk of loss for bad behavior. Once again, if they're successful with that, they're going to draw in more advertising dollars, right? They're going to draw in more user engagement. They're going to start to outcompete, say, Instagram or something else. So there's this further dynamic to Bitcoin where an early adopter, again, we're just focusing on the social media application here, but I'm sure there's dozens of others in, in the digital space that they'll adopt it because they can, whereas later adopters may have to adopt it because they need to, right? Just to remain competitively relevant, to deliver a, a quality of service similar to Twitter, Instagram now has to integrate to the Bitcoin blockchain. Um and this is, you know, just an amazing and little understood aspect of Bitcoin is that, you know, as I think Sailor said, uh, it can make cyberspace a safe place for 8 billion people to interact, um, which is to say we have a system, and this is so fascinating about Bitcoin, is that it's incentivizing honest behavior at every level. Everyone that touches Bitcoin their, their incentives are shifted towards honesty because that is the only productive strategy, right? Even in this case we just laid out where a social media platform will actually have to reintroduce, not reintroduce, introduce this cost of, of messaging, which increases the honesty and quality of dialogue in their network. But they have to do that precisely because a competitor already did it and there was an economic value uh, generated from that. So this is where the lines start to get blurry, right? It's like there's this economic goodness created by Bitcoin, but it's related to a moral goodness of you know additional honesty um, or higher quality discourse, if you want to call it that. And so it's just, yeah, that's a lot to think about there. This this connection, maybe even between, as the Austrians have written about for for a long time, there's a lot of literature on this, this connection between the monetary standard and the moral standard. And it, it seems like um, Bitcoin is just really highlighting that connection and introducing um, an ideal honest money to the world again. So, you know, to cap this off, if we go all the way back to how Sailor and I started this discussion, 
he laid out this idea of ideal money, which was this shared, immutable, correct ledger in the cloud, if you will, um, which would, you know, again, if we just consider property, right? Property is kind of being this list of who owns what, uh, money being the ultimate form of property, because it can be used to as a call option effectively on any other form of property in a trading economy, that you the money isn't the the wealth, right? Wealth is the capital we're creating, the things, the goods, the services, the reputations, the knowledge, all of that. That's the capital. But money is the instrument, the social construct, if you will, that reflects the value of all that capital and is used as a liquid medium for trading the capital. So we're trading things for money all the time. So we'd have to trade things directly, right? It's, it's adding, it's lubricating the market process, if you will. And so therefore money is really just informational in nature, right? You just need something that maps onto the scarcity of energy and time that which are the primary inputs into the economy, right? That's what, what we are economizing for actually is our own time and energy expenditure. So the ideal money would be this purely informational incorruptible shared informational tool that mapped onto that directly and 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 kept track of who successfully satisfied the wants of the marketplace whatever the market wants whoever gives it to the market should then earn um, money basically and an ability to claim um, claim the goods and services that the market generates for themselves so you know that's what Bitcoin is. Bitcoin is that. Bitcoin is this shared, immutable, correct ledger in the sky. Um, and it's effectively you know, the closest thing to a perfect monetary technology the world's ever had. So then the question that I finished with is like, what's going on? Why, does, why is this not, why is this still laughed at? You know, there's so many people in mainstream media, and, uh, which I would more aptly call the corporate press. Thanks, Michael Malice, for that one. Um, that laugh at Bitcoin, think it's a joke, think it's going to zero, it's you know a Ponzi scheme, whatever. And as we've covered here, it's clearly the opposite, right? It's like entirely opposite. So I asked Sailor, like, what's going on? What's the disconnect here? And he makes this great point that you know, human beings can just uptake a new idea so quickly. Right, especially when it comes to something as fundamental as money, it takes time for this idea to spread. It's a profound idea, by the way. So it takes a really long time, I think, for people's worldview to attune to this new radical technology. Right, this, you're literally talking about swapping out the base layer protocol for human action. Right, this is we've been playing the game of gold for five thousand plus years, and now we're talking about being 12 to 13 years into this digital disruption of gold. So like that's how big of a deal it is, um, which explains why there's so much information asymmetry in the space, but also explains why there's so much potential upside, right? The, the, the market capitalization of Bitcoin is reflective of the world's understanding of money effectively. And so, you know, we're early. Bitcoin, uh, as this time of recording, it's sub one trillion market cap, and I think the global store value marketplace, depending on how you measure it, 
it's over $200 trillion. So you're talking about a 200X upside um, today. And I think that that smells about right to me. So the spread of this profound idea, it's really throttled by people's willingness to, to study and learn. Uh, and I think Bitcoin takes hundreds of hours to really dig into and, and see the light, quote unquote. And then it, it's also, to the, to the plus side, I think it's increased actually by the liquidity of ideas enabled in the digital age. Information just moving so much faster on YouTube, via podcast, you know, the internet in general. So who knows? I think um, if I had to guess, I'd say it's about a 15-year process before Bitcoin is a is a or the dominant money monetary system in the world, I'd say. So by the year 2035 is kind of the way I'm looking at it. So I hope you guys enjoyed that one. Again, that was episode 12. Uh, We've got several more to go and um, I'll look forward to seeing you back here soon.